Welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our midweek service, and we are so glad that you are here. Thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers, and thank you for your support. Your offerings have been great. Thank you for uh, watching and keeping up with things. Be sure and go to our website at gracewayokc.org, and uh, there you can download the newsletter so you can be praying for people and praying about things. And uh, as I've said for several weeks now, don't just pray the prayer list. That's important. But also pray for different events and different things that are uh, going on in the church, even if you're not involved in them. It's a very good thing to do. So we're going back to Psalm 79. And in that, Asaph has written about the time when Jerusalem has been destroyed. The beautiful temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world is a heap of rubble. Can you imagine what that must have been like to walk by that and to see it? And for those who thought about later on that someday we need to rebuild this temple, <coughs> the task was overwhelming. In the book of Zechariah, you're familiar with the verse that says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You know what the context of that was? It was Zerubbabel, after the exiles had returned, looking at the rubble of the temple after 70 years. It was still overwhelming. Because it says in those verses that this mountain shall be removed. What mountain? Well, it wasn't Mount Sinai or anything like that. It was the mountain of rubble from the temple. What Nebuchadnezzar did, he did well. He did it thoroughly. He did it completely. And the text also indicates that that's what you would find everywhere you went in Jerusalem. Piles of rubble. The holy city, the beautiful city. The city of peace is what it literally means. That city where God has put, has put his name in ruins. And uh, people are impoverished. The brightest and the best, the sons of the nobility, the educated ones, the ones who might be able to figure out a way to pull Israel out of where it was. Where are they? Well, like Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in Babylon, long way away. They're not permitted to come back, not at this time. And so God's people are going to have a long 70 years in captivity. And the people that were left in the land, the remnant, there are so few of them, and they have little or no resources, and they're not going to be able to do anything until the 70 years is over. Can you imagine how miserable that must have been? Can you imagine how discouraging that must have been? I mean, everything that is familiar and everything around you is uh, torn down. So we uh, think about God works in his broken ones. So uh, let's compare what was Israel, particularly Judah? Let's talk about Judah, that southern kingdom. What were they like before 
the invasion and before the destruction and before the captivity. Um, I don't know any other way to describe it except they were pretty arrogant. They had the idea that God would never let Jerusalem fall. After all, that's his city. They had the idea that God would never let the temple be destroyed. Therefore, Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah would stand. After all, we have the temple. I mean, they could remember back when David brought the ark back from the Philistines. And do you remember that guy that uh, when the ark started to fall off the cart, all he did was try to steady it and he fell over dead? See, these Jews in Judah, they thought that, uh, well, if Nebuchadnezzar does come, the moment he steps into the temple, he'll be dead. You ever read anything like that? In fact, the Bible says they plundered the temple of God. It's as if God wanted to show them, I don't live in your temple. I live in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. And the Lord reigns from on high. And uh, to look at the temple as a superstitious good luck charm, well, it's blasphemous, isn't it? And so to say we can live any way we want and we can do anything we want and we can ignore the prophets, ignore the preachers, and we can live in sin, we can worship idols, there can be sexual immorality, it really doesn't matter. I mean, we're the people of God. You know, that sounds fairly modern. There are a lot of people today that say, well, I'm under grace, so it doesn't matter if I go to church. It doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't matter if I read the Word of God. It doesn't matter uh, if I sin and how deep I sin or how long I sin. I mean, after all, I'm under grace. Well, let me tell you something. If you are, if you are, there's a day coming where you're going to regret all this. And if there is not, it simply means that you've been fooled. And you may have thought that you were saved because you walked an aisle, because you prayed a prayer, because you gave mental assent to a man named Jesus and his cross. But if there's no power in your life, and there's no desire for God, and there's no desire to live a holy life, then you are a false professor of faith. And I beg you and I urge you because I was one as well. Lay all that aside and put your faith and hope in Christ and in Christ only. Now, when we think about Judah before, very confident, very cocky, arrogant, all that kind of stuff. Look at Judah now. When you read what Asaph has to say in Psalm 79, it is not a pretty picture at all. Look at verse 5. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms 
that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. Remember Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. So they have devoured Israel and laid waste his dwelling place. Laid waste his dwelling place. The land is functionally useless at this point. Laid waste his dwelling place. Now, what Asaph doesn't know, but you and I certainly should know, is that Judah is just now getting to the place where God can use them as he wants to. Why would I say that? It seems like everything's against them. All the odds are against them. They don't have resources. They don't have uh, the population. They've got a lot of, lot of bodies, a lot of corpses to bury. The brightest and best are in Babylon. How, how in the world could we say that? Because there's something about people when they are broken that makes them usable to God. Let me say that again. There's something about people when they're broken that makes them usable to God. Now, I don't mean that like people do now. It seems like today people kind of um, praise their unfaithfulness, their brokenness. Oh, I'm a broken person and all of that. And there's a lot of excuse making in that. There is some truth. We are all broken, aren't we? And we are all failures. But if you use that thinking that you're going to get sympathy, if you use that as an excuse for why you didn't do your best, if you use that to try to, oh, manipulate and even shame other people, that's not what the Bible talks about. In fact, when the Bible talks about brokenness, you know who it is generally that breaks? It's God. When uh, there was uh, about 5,000 men plus wives and children, and they're in a valley listening to Jesus. Jesus said, uh, people are hungry, feed them some lunch. Boy, the disciples were like, how in the world are we supposed to do this? Even if we had the money to do it, how would we do it with this many people? Then you remember someone said, you know, there's a little boy here He's got five loaves and two fishes. And then he says that very faith-filled statement, but what is so little among so many? And do you recall what Jesus did? He took the fish out and the loaves out, and he blessed them, and then he broke them. Had the fish not been broken... The 5,000 never would have been fed. Had the bread not been broken, the 5,000 never would, would have been fed. And it was a miracle because as he broke it off, he kept getting more and more and more, right? The disciples took home 12 basketfuls of the fragments. It was an amazing, amazing thing. But the fish and the bread were not usable until they were broken. I want you to think about a statement that I heard uh, Chuck Swindoll make years ago. And then I found out later on it didn't originate with him. Uh, it was somebody back way before him. And it says this, in history, 
as well as in the Bible, God never used anyone greatly until he allowed them to hurt very deeply. You know, God will put a hurting on you. And God will make sure that you're broken. If you're arrogant, if you're proud, if you are independent, if you are self-sufficient, uh, if you're living in sin, all of those things, and you're a child of God, he knows how to take care of that, and he's going to. In the uh, 23rd Psalm, no, excuse me, in Psalm 51, where David repents of his sin, he makes this statement, he goes, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Now, a lot of you know this already, but just in case you don't, the shepherds in those days, if they had a particular lamb, they would tend to stray. The shepherd knew that that lamb was going to be lunch for a wolf or a bear or a lion. So for the well-being and protection of the lamb, he did something. The shepherd would break the legs of the lamb, at least one of them. And then you say, well, then the lamb can't walk. Yeah, the shepherd would carry the lamb, usually around his neck. And by the time that leg healed and that lamb has grown and he can walk on that again, you know what he does? He won't stray from the shepherd because he has gotten to know the shepherd. He likes the shepherd. He likes the way the shepherd's voice sounds. He likes the way the shepherd smells, if you can imagine. And so when he's put down on the ground, what does he do? He follows close to the shepherd. That the bones you have broken may rejoice. You reckon David had some broken bones? Not literally, but spiritually. You reckon the shepherd said when David got off of the track with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, you suppose that his shepherd said, I'm going to make it so you never do that again and broke the bones and then carried David around so that when David is finally healed, when Nathan says, thou art the man and David repents, he's got the joy of the Lord and he's going to remain close to the shepherd. It's really a beautiful picture. And so brokenness is the key. We just don't like brokenness. We want to run from brokenness. We want to be as far away from brokenness as we can. So pain comes into our life for a reason. Suffering comes into our life for a reason. Tragic circumstances come into our life for a reason. The hurts of other people come into our lives for a reason. Ron Dunn says, every time you experience some type of pain, be it physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, whatever it may be, it's another cross on which to die. And didn't Jesus tell us that if we're going to follow him, we're supposed to deny ourselves? Seems to me like a lot of the preaching today is about fulfilling yourself, very little about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. And so uh, this is key. We've got to be dead people. We've got to be on the altar of sacrifice, a living sacrifice. But Paul said in the book of Romans, considering ourselves to be dead. 
yielded to God. Lord, I'm dead. <coughs> you live through me. Lord, you think through me. You control my emotions. You control the way that I walk, where I walk, how I walk, when I walk, the speed with which I walk. You control all of that, and you live your life through me. Have you ever prayed anything like that? Lord, I'm so broken. Live your life through me. I don't know what to do. Live your life through me. So let's talk about this in uh, light of this psalm. Now I'm going to give you some words, and these words all start with a D, but they illustrate uh, the point. Number one would be desperation. If you are not desperate, you're not broken, let's say. Okay? What do I mean by being desperate? means that all options are gone. Do I have your attention? You say sometimes to God in church, oh, draw me close to you. And he says, I am. I'm going to take away all of your options. I'm going to take away your choices. I'm going to make it so that when you are Looking at life, you feel like you are hemmed in, walled in, that you are stuck. Ever felt like that? I have. More than once, sadly. And what do we do with that feeling? You'll notice that when Asaph writes about this, he says, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? And will your jealousy burn like fire. You know what he's saying? We're stuck here because of our sin. Let's be honest. But we're stuck here under the anger of the Lord, under the jealousy of the Lord, and we don't have any options. That's why he cried out to the Lord. And what the Lord is doing when he takes away your options is he is bringing you to a place where you will turn to him. And you'll turn to him in the right way, not just casually, not just half-heartedly, not just on a Sunday, but your life will be transformed because you realize I have no other choice except to run to the Lord. It's like the prodigal son when he's by the hog pen. He said, I'm going to arise and go to my father's house. You know what he was saying? I don't have anywhere else to go except to the father. I don't have any other thing that I can do. No other options. I can't eat the hog food and nobody else will help me out. I'm starving to death. And if I don't go now, I might not make it. So he gets up and he goes. And you know the rest of the story, how the father received him and fed him and restored him and all of that. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But understand that the young man had to get to where he had no other options before he went home. Secondly, I want you to think about the word dilemma. Dilemma. The reason I chose that word is because you no longer have the answers. Boy, this is a dilemma. What do you do? I don't know. How do you handle this? I don't know. Where are you going to be tomorrow? I don't know. How long is this going to last? I don't know. Asaph says, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call your name. 
What does that have to do with dilemma? Over and over in the Old Testament, you find people that are absolutely astounded that God would punish his people, Israel, and he would use pagans to do it. I mean, read the book of Habakkuk. Doesn't make any sense, God. These people are worse than we are. Even when we worshiped idols, even when we were, you know, rejecting the prophets, we still went to the temple. I mean, don't think that they gave up temple worship. Don't think that they quit celebrating Passover. Don't think that they quit any of their Sabbath rituals. They didn't. They just did the idols in addition to it, and the sin was in addition to it. Boy, there are a lot of people who come to church and they can't wait to get out of church because they're ready to go back to what they were in before they came. The pig returns to its pig pen, its mire, and the dog returns to its vomit. Isn't that what the scripture says? And you think about people that are just like the Jews in Judah. It's not that they've quit on God. But it is that they have added a whole lot of garbage, a whole lot of junk. Well, that made me think of Carl Kerrigan. A lot of that to their lives and to their religion. So God is second place. He's not primary. He told them in Exodus 20, you, may ha you will have no other gods before me. Well, they had gods all over the place. And so they're claiming both. They pray to Baal and they also pray to Yahweh. And God says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you, I'm warning you, and over and over for a long time he did. Now the day has finally come. Now here's the dilemma. Asaph, how does this look to you? Well, it looks like that God's people are being punished for idolatry, and the Babylonians are being rewarded for the same thing. It looks like God's people are paying a price for being unfaithful to God. And yet these other people that are all around us, they don't worship you. They've never called on your name. I mean, we may not have been all that we should be, but we were better than that. You're not really broken when you're thinking like that. When you're comparing yourself to other people and you're saying, well, at least I don't do what they do. At least I don't live like they live. At least my life makes more sense. At least I make better decisions than they do. You're not really broken. Therefore, you're not really usable. The dilemma is when you come to the place where you no longer have the answers. Now, what does that do for you? It ought to drive you to the Lord. Sometimes, sadly, God's people get to this place. Life doesn't make sense. They don't know what to do. So then they go looking for people to answer that. And there's no preacher, priest, rabbi, counselor, whatever you want to put in there that's going to be able to give you the answers that the Lord can. This indeed is a dilemma. It's a paralyzing dilemma. Again, what are you going to do? I don't know. What's happening here? I don't know. Why did this happen? I don't know. It took them a while to figure all of that out. And so they're stuck. Number three, the word dare comes to mind. Okay. What am I meaning by that? Meaning this, I'm daring you to face the facts as they really are. 
I'm daring you to look truthfully at your situation. You know, there are a lot of people that are caught in sin and they immediately have an alibi. They immediately have an excuse. Adam said, well, it's the woman that you made for me, right? Boy, we're good at that kind of stuff. It comes naturally from childhood. We do not want to be guilty. We've got an excuse. There's a reason why I said that. There's a reason why I did that. It basically boils down to this. You're never going to get anywhere with God as long as you say it wasn't my fault. There was a reason I did that. There are reasons I'm not faithful. There are reasons that I'm not what you want me to be, but it's not my fault. I dare you to look at everything honestly. You look in uh, verse 7. Asaph said, For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. There's no point in pretending that everything's okay. There's no point in pretending that it's going to be fine in a day or two or a week or two or a month or two or a day or two. In fact, if you were to say, well, it's going to be about 70 years, it wasn't fine after the remnant came back. It took a while to build a wall under Nehemiah. It took a while, some 16 years to build the temple back. All of those kind of things that had to be corrected. It's going to be a long-term process, and the people, because of their sin and their lack of repentance toward God, they're to blame for all of this. So face the facts of the wreck that your life is, of the wreck that your family is in. Face the facts. You don't really get any help until you admit you have a need. And so whatever it might be, it might be in your finances, it might be in relationships. I mean, the Lord will tell you. But as long as you have an excuse, you're never going to really be used by God because you're not broken. Number four, there's got to be divine intervention. If all I do is hit head on, have a head on collision with life, and now I'm broken from head to toe, if there's no one to fix me, what good did that do? How did that help? Well, Asaph knows that there is a God who has made a covenant with Israel, and he's going to keep that Israel. Divine intervention, this is the only hope. You're not broken until you come to the place where you see that Christ is your only hope. Asaph writes, Remember former iniquities against us. Excuse me. Do not remember former iniquities against us and let your tender mercies come speedily, speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. I guess the implication would be Asaph is saying, we're so low, you're the only hope we have. <clears throat> pastor came into his office one time and secretary Mrs. Jones was sitting there and he said, well, Mrs. Jones, the only thing left to do is pray. And she goes, oh, has it come to that? Why do we act that way? 
Why do we act when we get to point number four? Why do we act as though somehow if we get to the point where all we've got is God, we've lost. We've missed out on life. Everybody else is in better shape than we are. Why do we act like that? And God is simply saying to you, I'm tired of being your last resort. I want to be your first resource. When we think about the divine intervention, I think about in the book of Hebrews, it says that if you come to God, you've got to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then when you find out that God rewards you by giving you himself, some of you got disappointed then. Some of you go, oh, all we get is God. And here you have the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, almighty God. And yet you're disappointed that he is your defender, your shield, your protector, your provision. He's your everything. Well, Asaph would have a different idea. He just wants it to hurry up. Let all of this come speedily. Reverse what you've been doing, Lord, and quit blessing the pagans and bless us now. Let us be the ones as your people that abide under your mercies. Help us put things back together. Help us to rebuild in all of this. And someday that would come, but not now. You know, today, I'll just conclude with this. People say that uh, you need to be woke. My answer to that would be, no, you need to be broke. And it's only when you're broken that God can really use you. Because in this, you have nowhere else to turn. And that's exactly where he wants you. So I hope that helps you to think a little bit. Quit running from brokenness. Quit misusing your brokenness. And when you are in a broken state, as we have defined it here, then turn to the Lord. He's the one who will fix your brokenness, and I'm glad that he does. Father, take this message and take the things that we need to know and drive them deep into our mind, deep into our heart, so that we understand Brokenness for us is more of a blessing than we ever thought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this. Pray for one another, pray for the church, and we'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday morning. God bless you.